wanted people to like being informed. I wanted people to get joy out of reading the news because I love it so much. But everyone said the news makes me miserable. The news actually makes me scared. The news makes me focus on death and war. And so I wanted to see if we could change that relationship with news. And so one of the ways that we do that is we do a bulletin on Instagram at 8 a.m. every single day. Every single day ends with good news. Sam Kozlowski is co-founder of The Daily Oz, Australia's leading social first news service, delivering news geared towards a younger audience with an emphasis on positivity. If we decide as an organization that we care about our readers' mental health, then that's going to make a difference. Sam broke away from the path he was on, feeling like he was playing a role that wasn't right for him working as a corporate lawyer and hating it. It was this sense of pretending that I never wanted to have in a job. As someone with his own history of anxiety, the constant negativity and fear-mongering of mainstream news was particularly noticeable to Sam, and he realized those same feelings were making other young people switch off from the 24-hour news cycle. The only thing we have is trust. That's it. And that's what I think traditional media has lost. They've lost trust and they've burnt the bridge. As soon as we stop listening, we're going to stuff it up. So Sam and Zara Seidler made the bold move to launch their own news platform that's now an Instagram page, newsletter and podcast that reaches a quarter of a million young Aussies each day. The Daily Oz is the disruptor proving it's possible to stay informed and stay positive. Welcome to Young Blood, an award-winning podcast on a mission to make the mental health of young men a top priority. My name's Callum McPherson, I'm a journalist, and this is our platform to open up and share stories of what we've been through because we're not alone. Let's do it. Before we kick this off, I just want to say thanks so much to everyone who's taken 15 to 90 seconds out of their day to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It boosts us up the ranks massively and makes a huge difference to how many people we can reach with these potentially life-saving stories. So thank you. And for those who haven't got around to it, please, if Youngblood has delivered you some value, let us know on there. Cheers, legends. This episode is sponsored by Bolton Brothers, the guys dedicated to changing the face of men's mental health, and Ski for Life, the organization promoting mental health and suicide prevention through their annual ski relay in South Australia. Check out their websites and follow them on socials. So Sam, you've achieved a huge amount in a short time and on paper it looks very intense, especially for a man that's as young as yourself. At what point on your journey did you start having your own mental health challenges? The mental health challenges for me came well before any sort of business interests or even before I knew I wanted to work in the media. I was quite an anxious little boy and it's really informed how I go about my work and, and the, the person I am is, is my mental health issues. Um, and I see it as a great strength and, and something I'll always have to contend with. Um, but, you know, doing a job that I really love has actually been the best thing for my mental health so far. I mean, like it's just totally shifted the way that I feel about myself and about my work and that, that's been really good. So just speak a bit about how you used to feel about yourself, perhaps in your childhood or your, your teenage years when you started experiencing symptoms of anxiety. I was just an extremely anxious little dude. I um, always thought worst case scenario. I had a lot of therapy to try and, um, you know, work out why I was feeling the way I was feeling. Um, I just got stressed by a lot of things. I had terrible sleeping. Um, 
And it didn't come out though. And this is the thing that I found really interesting about mental health. It didn't come out in social settings. So I wasn't shy. I was more comfortable speaking in front of a school assembly than I was sitting by myself alone in a room. Right. Even to this day, I like desperately try and make dinner plans to try and not be alone because I actually am way less anxious, which I know is different to the mental health narrative that we hear a lot um, of anxiety being mainly around social situations. So you found sitting with yourself and having to be still and not having a distraction was the most distressing time for you. Definitely. Definitely. And it still is. I mean, everything. That's why you're so busy. Sleep. Exactly. It's, it, it's nice to not have to be by myself or give myself time to think. But in saying that, it's, you've got to be aware of it and you've got to make sure that um, you don't burn out um, because that's the other end of the scale. So I remember um, when I was traveling, I had the opportunity to go to a city by myself for a couple of days and I did everything I could to avoid it. And then naturally thought, you know what, it's going to be good life experience and it's going to be good for me. So I did it three full days by myself, meals by myself, hotel room, everything. And it, it was really good. So um, I like to get busy. I like to not be by myself, but I, I definitely appreciate that there is merit in doing that sometimes as well. Where do you think that discomforts come from with being by yourself and on your own? Has that always been the case or do you feel like it's sort of changed a bit over time? Because I guess a lot of people would agree with you where there seems to be people who are much more comfortable with others than by themselves and then vice versa, people who are much more comfortable in their own company and more anxious in a group environment. So what do you think has been at play there and have you worked on that at all with any sort of uh, counselling? I think ultimately what it comes down to is a sense of external validation that I get so much out of. Uh, and this is, you know, me being super honest. I've just grown up um, and my personality, my DNA is that I get I, I get a big kick out of um, being externally validated, whether that's a room of laughing people or yeah. um, being told that I'm doing a good job. Um, and so I think constantly needing that feedback is probably why I didn't want to be by myself because no one else would give that feedback to me. Mm. I think that's something that a lot of young men feel is that you need to be kind of told you're doing a good job, um, whether it be by your family or your friends or your school or your job um, to, to kind of keep, keep happy and keep producing your work and, and keep turning up. Um, yeah. I've worked on it in therapy a lot. I always used to talk in therapy about who's the real Sam is the real Sam the one that we see performing uh, and talking on a podcast or, you know, running the show of a emerging media company and all of those really exciting things? Or is the real Sam um, less of a performer and all that kind of thing? And I think the the, res, the resolution that we always used to come to in my, in my therapy was always that there is no one real Sam and we've all got lots of different dimensions of our character uh, and and it's about kind of reconciling as being as authentic as you can in all situations, rather than feeling like you're performing and putting up a front sometimes, and then and then re kind of a recluse other times. And so, how much do you feel like you're able to be authentic in all areas of your life in this current stage that you're at? I I'm feeling more authentic than I ever have before. Uh, at university, I did a law degree and journalism, and I thought I was going to be a lawyer and my work is so important to me and, and what I do for work is so important to me that when I was working as a corporate lawyer, I was having a real crisis of internal 
um, confidence, self-esteem. Um, I, I kind of didn't know who I was. Uh, and that was really, really hard Is to, that because to reconcile. The, so, the work didn't align with what you thought was important or what was emerging for you as where you wanted to go direction-wise. But then you've already, you've obviously done all this study and sort of chosen this path. And this is such a typical thing that we see for young people who are university age where they're asked to make this life-changing decision that's going to put them on a certain path before we've had any sort of chance to figure out who we are. And that sort of seems a bit fraught in a lot of ways. It was this sense of pretending that I never wanted to have in a job. It was this sense of, you know, everything from wearing a suit, you know, one of the most important things to me now is that I never do a job again that has a suit. Because I, it just doesn't feel like me. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't feel authentic. It doesn't feel comfortable. Like, it's so, so bloody uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and that all contributes to the work environment and then how you feel about yourself um, when, you, when you're at work. And I speak to so many young people, particularly in law. I have to identify that. I mean, law has one of the highest dropout rates. Um, and there's a reason for that. It's because it's not suited for everyone. The other aspect to me is that I've, got symptoms of ADHD and I'm very hyperactive. So the idea of doing details oriented, super fine proofreading of thousands of pages sitting yep. still didn't, didn't work with me. It wasn't playing to my strengths uh, and that doesn't make you feel good when you get in trouble for doing the wrong thing. So you got all the way through uni though and started working as a corporate lawyer before you decided to make that change. Well, I was so anxious about making money and paying rent and all that kind of thing that even though I knew my, my love was the media and journalism and communicating the news to young people, it didn't feel like there were career opportunities out there that would be rewarding. I mean, my dad is a journalist and he was made redundant, um, you know, in the middle of the GFC. And so I had this reminder of, you know, it's not a good time to be in media. It's not, yeah, it's not great. So we're similar in that I, I'm qualified as a journalist and have worked as a reporter, uh, and still consider myself a journalist in many ways. And even when I was at uni, one of the first things they told us was none of you are going to get jobs, and it's a terrible time to be a journalist. And I guess to a degree, like you were sort of right in a sense that you have had to go and create your own thing, which is a pretty outstanding and unbelievable achievement to go and make Thanks, something man. from the ground up. So obviously you didn't choose the easy path, but um, yeah, go on. It was um, actually easier for me to own the stuff up if the Daily Oz isn't going to work or, or um, you know, was going to fail already. It was easier in my head to say, okay, I'd rather do something where, you know, I can say that I had control over the fact that it broke rather than work for a big media conglomerate where I didn't have control over the media that we were producing and what we were contributing to young people. Um, it felt much easier for me to own that. So it, it actually in some ways was easier. And when did you start coming into contact with media then? How did you how did you switch from doing law to creating your own media thing? Did you have any other media experience prior to that? Because obviously that's not an easy transition. Yeah, so during university I worked at Fox Sports in social media. So I worked for one of those big conglomerates that I was just speaking about and was a tiny fish in a massive company and learnt a lot of incredible skills, worked very hard, um, you know, really 
busted my gut to try and prove myself in a very competitive work environment. So I had that context of being familiar with some of the technologies, some of the ways that media companies operate and, and who you need to talk to to get things done. Um, but then the idea of starting my own thing really came about extremely organically. Um, it came about because my friends wanted it and Zara and I just did it for our, for our mates and then it just grew big. But I think that time at Fox Sports was super important for my career, um, super important to just be a sponge learning all the things good and bad uh that's that's what makes us be able to jump into a startup and suddenly have to run the show with zara um that you know i had that backbone of media experience to go back on what made you really start focusing on the mental health impact of the media was there any particular catalyst or did you notice over time how that was impacting people well what i knew about the news was that the news was always associated by my friends as causing misery and causing harm mentally. Um, and that was really hard for me because I wanted people to like being informed. I wanted people to get joy out of reading the news because I love it so much. I mean, my, my happy place is buying a newspaper on a Saturday morning and going to a cafe and reading it. And even though I work in the news, that's my, that's the way I want to spend time off. I love it. But, everyone said the news makes me miserable the news actually makes me scared the news makes me focus on death and war and so i wanted to see if we could change that relationship with news and so one of the ways that we do that is we do a bulletin on instagram at 8 a.m every single day every single day ends with good news every single bulletin so we're now you know we've done it for more than two thousand days now um, and every single day has been the good news is X, Y, and Z. Today, the good news is that um, the Paris City Council has um, approved the plan to have cycling lanes throughout the entire city. Like just something to make you feel like the news isn't terrible. Mm. Um, because a lot of my friends just switch off the news. They, they, they Their mental health can't actually handle it. Um, so there has to be a way to combine the news and mental health. Um, I did a fascinating um, seminar with Movember where we talked a lot of people through on a, on a webinar at the height of COVID. We talked people through how to handle COVID news while maintaining good mental health. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, as you mentioned, and, and that's there, super interesting. As you mentioned there, the news plays on the sympathetic. The news plays on the sympathetic nervous system and the triggering of the fight or flight response and the fact that as human beings, we're wired to look at threats and danger above all else. And the news knows that you can manipulate that to get more views and more clicks and then ultimately more money. What impact does that have, though, on our society over time, especially if it's nonstop, it's continuous, it's every day and it gets harder and harder? Um, and during crisis like COVID where... It really, there is no end to it. And not only is the situation not stopping, but your exposure to every little detail of how it's developing and also the exaggeration of the negatives is constantly in your face as well. What have you seen that do to people over time? It's turned them away from it. So I think we're actually at saturation point with news. So, you know, the, the 24 hour news cycle was born in the very early 2000s and 9-11 is often held up as the first example of where this rolling coverage and this rolling 24 news cycle was born into relevance. It was this sense of 
people sitting in front of a TV for 12 hours watching back-to-back news coverage. And that's kind of what's happened since then. I mean, there is no shortage of ways to get a news bulletin right now, but to keep engaged throughout the day. And 24-hour news cycles have become good at putting things out the right, at the right time, making sure that they can have a morning, a lunchtime, an afternoon, and an evening reader. Because that's all, as you, as you said, that's all ad dollars that you now, instead of getting them at one time at 6 p.m. for the nightly news and getting one ad view out of them, you can get it at four or five or six different times of the day. What we're seeing now, I think, is a bit of a rejection of that saturation, that we're seeing people you know, exercise their fight or flight responses too much. We're seeing people be desensitized to death counts and to bad news and to terrible announcements, especially with the pandemic. I mean, the fact that we as a society were kind of tracking every casualty, you know, I noticed at one point Sky News had a had a count in the bottom corner where they would say how many cases we had each day. Like that's a really um, interesting relationship to really sad data. Uh, so one of the ways that we try and get around that is just say to people, we'll have the data up for you. We want you to log on to Instagram, check the numbers, and then log off. You don't need to look at this all day. Mm. Um, but that that it's it's fascinating. It's curious, and people are addicted to it. Yeah, because it's like how much do you need to know? Once you have the basic facts and you understand where you fit within that and what you need to do to try and keep yourself safe as best you can, how much is it actually beneficial to people to keep watching the same thing over and over and over again and feed into the fear and only let it overcome them? And all you have to do is turn on any, any sort of TV station or go through your social media feed and you'll find it non-stop in front of your face and obviously the news is there as a service to inform the community and they would say that their purpose is ultimately to serve the people and to help but they're also a bit of a slave to the 24-hour news cycle and to an extent you can't really blame them and it's an interesting dichotomy because they have to produce a certain amount of content to be able to feed that cycle and that means being repetitive it means exaggerating things and drumming things up because there's a belief that there's a demand that we need to produce that much news to satisfy the audience and i think that both sides probably don't really benefit from that because having worked in the news when you have to just come up with a massive amount of content to fill time the quality is going to drop the relevance is going to drop the exaggeration is going to increase and you're going to produce more stories that perhaps no one actually really needs to see because there's all this time that has to be filled Uh, and it's like can we go back to a non-24-hour news cycle who actually wants that and i guess it comes down to money it does but it also comes down to how the news behaves internally. I mean, if we decide as an organization that we care about our readers' mental health, then that's going to make a difference. Mm. So, but I don't know if the words mental health have been included in the kind of mission statements of news companies so far. I don't think Um, so. And that's that's not necessarily because they're ignorant. It's just because it wasn't wasn't cool. No. It wasn't done. No, and it's also a harder road. If you're selecting stories based off their merit and the benefit that they're going to provide to people rather than just easy clickbait that's always going to be there, that means you have to work harder to produce that. So that might not make sense dollars-wise, but obviously it serves a higher purpose that – the way things are currently isn't working, isn't helping people in a lot of ways. So perhaps we do have to change it up and make more of an effort. And if you can't fill the sheer amount of news stories, maybe do a bit less, work a bit harder on them, make them have more actual impact and value in a way that 
hopefully starts to sway people and make people think that actually the news can deliver me a benefit rather than just freak me out or make me worry about something that I'm already worried about. News, not noise. That's our saying. Yeah, I love that. It's all about news, not noise. So how do you have the audacity to go against the rest of the news industry when it's well held that this is the only way to do it? Probably a underdeveloped frontal lobe um, <laughs> and not really not really appreciating the risk. And but that's the thing, right? Like I'm 26. Um, this is a really cool project and, and a really great life experience. If it doesn't work, uh, I've kind of come around and this has been helped by a lot of therapy as well in terms of anxiety. I've come around to the fact that it's going to be okay. You know, I have the audacity to take on the news industry because even if this doesn't work, it it's going to be... I'll, I'll work out a way to to keep employed um, and to try different things. But this is the time to take the risk. I mean, I don't have a mortgage. I'm a long way from buying a house. I don't have people who are reliant on me. Uh, and that's a unique and selfish time. Uh, and it's a lot easier to be to be stupid. Yeah, I can relate to you on that. What a time to be alive, eh? Yeah. <laughs> it's good stuff. We're just going to take a quick break to hear about a brilliant new podcast called Samson's Stronger that I really encourage you guys to go and check out. Often the hardest stories to tell are the ones that need to be told the most. This is an incredibly informative series focusing on the stories of child sexual abuse survivors and bringing the conversation forward on what's always been a taboo topic. Take a listen. What does it take? I always knew something was wrong but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. To grow stronger than your past. Because I knew if I spoke up, something bad would happen. What does it take for a man to overcome the sexual abuse he endured as a child? This is where resilience comes in. It was bringing about awareness that the suffering that survivors and victims of child sexual assault endure is nothing that anyone could describe. Of course, only we know. So for me, the more I talk about it, the less it becomes a secret. And that's the approach that I take, is to suck the energy out of the secret and it just becomes a story. From Samson, the Survivors and Mates Support Network, this is Stronger. Sharing for the first time the courageous recovery stories of male survivors of child sexual abuse and their supporters. Samson's Stronger Podcast. Available at samson.org.au forward slash podcast and on your podcast app. And how has going after building this massive behemoth and taking on such a big project with all the risk of that and none of the surety, how's that impacted yep. your mental health along the way? How have you been able to manage that? I think the hardest thing for my mental health this year was failing to draw a line between work and and not work. So all of a sudden I had this massive personal investment in what we were doing. Um, and so it would make me work harder and later Um, and get up earlier and do it in the morning. It didn't help that we were working from home. I mean, my desk was in my bedroom. Um, So it was kind of like just this, you know, month on month experience of that eventually culminated in in the burnout. That's actually happened now twice this year. I've gone too hard. I haven't slept enough. And it comes out for me in making really big mistakes. So big spelling errors or or replying to a wrong email or that kind of thing. And that's when I kind of know I'm trying to push the envelope too much. But the, the actual answer to that is to, to slow it down. You're a public figure as well to an extent and you're under a, a lot of pressure. How do you manage that? I, mean, I know you said before that you really like 
being in front of people and getting that yeah. validation and feeling like you're having an impact. Uh, how do you stop it from getting to be too much though? It's been it's been fast how quickly both Zara and I have gone from, um, you know, just, you know, private citizens to doing a daily podcast and having our faces in front of 270,000 people on Instagram and, and all that kind of thing and how quickly the private messages that are hypercritical have started to come in. Mm. Um, it took me a little while to work out why these people would be bothered. Um, you know, it's it takes a lot of effort to be super critical um, in a private Twitter message or a private email or something. Yeah, We've got incredibly supportive people in our audience and I try and make sure that we're highlighting the good stuff that they say rather than just circulating around the team. Oh, look what this person said about my tone of voice and how annoying it is. Um, these other six people said that they are listening to it in a year nine classroom every day and we're helping all of these kids get their head around the news for the day. That's right. So you're trying to beat the sympathetic nervous system again there because obviously if we get 10 positive comments and we get one that's negative, then we're going to naturally focus on the negative one. But I suppose it takes a bit of practice to be able to disengage from that and think about the massive positive impact that you're having because there's always going to be someone that takes issue with it, people who are obviously insecure of themselves. Yeah, look, I, I tend to think because of the way that they're worded and trying to check out some of the profiles, I tend to think that they're older people um, and that they don't have as much appreciation for what we're doing on social media and they tend to write it off as a bit of, you know, just this is stupid kids news, um, which is fine because that's not that's not who we're there for. We're there for people who use social media as their natural habitat of getting information. I learned very early on not to reply to them is there's no kind of, there's no benefit that's going to come out of that. So we just left that. And the other thing that we do a lot is we talk about absorbing things as a team. So absorbing public pressure as a team and making sure that we are open with each other about it because if we just keep siloing it, then we're just going to have a bu bunch of n nervous people in the office. And that's I, no good I guess as well, if you weren't getting that sort of pushback, then you're probably not making as much change because what you're doing is rattling a cage. And if everything that you're about and your mandate is to try and change something that's always been so because you believe that there's yeah. a better way of doing things. Some people might think that's a bit rude, <laughs> yeah. but it's cool. It's oh, very it's, necessary. It's it's the troublemaker's mentality. It's it's disruption. It's doing stuff that makes people a little bit uncomfortable because it's not how it's been done. That's exciting. And how is the content of the Daily Oz changing young people's lives for the better, specifically from what you've seen? So I think that there is this massive step that's been missed between school and becoming an adult, this block of lessons on, um, you know, what are interest rates? What does net zero mean? Um, how does politics work? Um, because when you try and read, if you pick up the newspaper today and start reading about stuff, there's a lot of terms in there that you might not be familiar with. There's a lot of characters that you might not be familiar with. And you're expected just to kind of jump into the news cycle and, and keep rolling. So, you know, when we're recording this this podcast, for example, the Prime Minister got up today and said net zero by 2050. In the way that we reported that news, we said this is what he said and this is what net zero means because we're assuming that people are coming into the news cycle today for the first time and that's okay. You don't have to feel like an idiot to 
to have something explained to you. We want to make having stuff explained to you cool. We're opening up dinner table conversations. We're opening up first dates. We're opening up difficult conversations with a boss at morning tea yeah. um, because we're arming people with the right information. And I like the focus on the explanation as well rather than just the facts or just throwing the news at people because I think we yeah. see a lot more of that these days where it's like this is what happened and that's it. And of course, yeah. that's necessary for the news cycle to truck along. And there's just, if you're trying to pack in as much as possible, then you're doing it for a short amount of time as possible and assuming a lot of knowledge. But I think part of what makes people feel like they're being cared for or they're part of an actual service or a community is having things explained to them and not being made to feel like, oh, well, if you don't already know this, then you're an idiot. Yeah, we're trying to close that education gap, intellectual gap, whatever you want to call it, because the news is for everyone. We as a a group of people actually own the news. The news can't really um, tell us this is what you needed to know before you start jumping in. It's meant to be there to to make ourselves more active citizens. Mm. Um, And and that's exactly what we're trying to do. And also desensationalize people from reading hyper, hyper critical news and dramatic headlines and everything. Just say it as it is. Have you had feedback from people that it has positively influenced their mental health? Yes, we have. We've had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of messages from people. Um, One of the biggest ways that we grow is through people sending our page to other people saying, this is the way that you're going to feel better about the world. And this is the way that you can have a healthier um, habit in terms of gaining information. And that advocacy is the best testimony we could possibly get. Um, But we get people, you know, coming up to us in the street sometimes and saying, um, I'm not a newsreader, but, or I never thought I'd be interested in the economy, but, um, and that is just the best because um, we're not writing our news for the people who read six newspapers a day. We're writing it for the people who are on Instagram and just want a quick bit of news before they keep going with their day. And that's okay. And now that you're at the point where you're getting that feedback regularly, what does that make you think about what you've achieved and the future? It just makes me more determined to keep going. Um, I probably do need to spend a little bit more time kind of um, reflecting on the success that we've had and the growth that we've had. But Zara and I only quit our jobs in February of this year and we've got a long way to go. And we we kind of have a choice here of do we just want to make another youth media company um, or do we want to change the way that the news operates in Australia? And that's really hard to do because there's some really huge dominant players Um and we're going to try and squeeze our way in. But, you know, we've got almost 300,000 Australians who are reading us every day. That tells me that we're on the right track. Mm. Um, so it makes me feel determined. It makes me feel hungry. And it makes me just want to um, I'll keep going. I'm not done. I'm nowhere near done. And there's a, a quote that goes something along the lines of, if you hunt monsters, you got to watch out that you don't turn into one. So... How do you avoid not becoming everything you swore to destroy? Good question. I think um, listening. Listening is the single most important part of our day. Uh, And whether that's listening to private messages that come across our DMs, but also just the feedback that um, my girlfriend and my housemates and our audience, and I mean our audience is in the people I interact with who I want to be reading The Daily Oz, how they're feeling about what we're doing. And if I had a choice between listening to a potential major sponsor or a group of young people, I'm going to go with the group of young people every time because the only thing we have is trust. That's it. 
And that's what I think traditional media has lost. They've lost trust and they've burnt the bridge. And as soon as we stop listening, we're going to stuff it up. And obviously that only gets harder as you go along because as you grow, there's you're a bigger platform, there's more offers of money, there's more temptation to be swayed from what you originally set out to do. And I think a lot of the mistrust yeah. with media these days is because it's so tight, tightly linked to corporate business and, and, and business interests and thus not purely doing what it originally was set up to do. So totally. easier at the start when you're smaller and you got a very clear memory of exactly why you started out doing it. But I imagine you have to stay very disciplined and not let other influences come in and sway you and turn you into something that you never wanted to be anyway. And that actually takes a lot of conviction and character to avoid that happening. It did. And it goes back to that point that you were saying before about um, how do you feel about the fact that it might not work? Um, and I was saying that I, I joked that my frontal lobe was not developed, but it's actually true. I mean, like we are so young and we are so new at this that we can say no to a big corporate offer because we still ideologically think that what we're doing is going to work. And if it does, that's epic. And if it doesn't, at least we gave it a, a red hot go. Yeah. And at least you won't die wondering, you know, that's the main thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I believe you've got a pretty close relationship with Zach Seidler, who's a leading uh, psychologist in Australia and also a director at Movember. How does he see yeah. the role of storytelling and media in the whole mental health picture? So Zara, uh, our co-founder, is Zach's sister. So we have a very close, and he, Zach's a really um, great mate of mine. I constantly check in with him about, you know, are we doing the right thing in terms of young people's mental health, young men's mental health especially, Um we talk to him about the way that we report really sensitive content. So if there's a domestic violence story or, um, you know, some really heavy stuff, we always check in with him to say, are we being responsible in the way that we're reporting this? Um, I think that, I think that what Zach is doing, uh, that uh, is really admirable. And we're trying to emulate as much of that as possible in how we're growing the daily Oz. So whether that's, um, having a particular focus on men's health in our reporting, um, and highlighting the ways in which, government policy affects psychology um, and access to psychology and all that kind of stuff. We can actually shape the way that people think about mental health through our reporting. And Zach's at the forefront of all, Zach and Movember are both at the forefront of all of that. So we, you know, we, he's never too far away. And what does he say about why that's so important? Because obviously he represents the clinical side of things, which is key, but there's also connecting the science to the actual consumer and the people through story. And I believe yeah. we need both of those elements. So what does he say about the role of a platform like the Daily Oz in actually connecting that science to the people who need to know about it in a way that's actually relevant? Well, what he was saying in particular about the coverage of COVID was the sharp spike in hopelessness and anxiety that he saw as a clinician informed by doom and gloom news. And so he drew a really strong connection between the way in which people are consuming media and the way in which they're presenting to therapy. And he challenged us to think about, do we need to cover every single minor escalation of the pandemic? Um, and, and what purpose is that serving? Is it noise or is it news? Yeah. Uh, and how are we making people feel about the world? Um, and even giving people permission to, to feel, I mean, we take on this really conversational voice. So remember that day in Melbourne where there was like an earthquake and yeah. lots of bad stuff happened? 
we we said to our audience that was a crap day <laughs> that was a really average day to be in melbourne um and that's not something you'd hear from a news organization but we wanted to kind of give the audience a voice of saying yeah that was pretty average so um that validation hopefully will improve people's mental health as well and i suppose you have to speak to your audience in the language that they would speak to each other um because you while you're a service that informs you also almost want to have a personal relationship i suppose because that's what builds loyalty and makes people feel like they're actually being catered for and, and connected with so where do you see the yeah. world of media going in the next decade in relation to how it's going to intertwine with mental health well i think we've broken the back of it being okay to report on mental health <laughs> and to report on uh, you know, difficult topics. Uh, I think there needs to be a little bit more sensitivity around the way in which some things are reported, particularly suicide. Um, that we, you know, there's not enough um, abiding by regulations across the media as to how to report it properly. Um, I think it, there's not enough in pop culture either. Um, and I think I think we've got a long way to go in that space, and that will evolve over the next ten years. But I think what we're going to see in the media and mental health is basically people consuming less media, but focusing more when they're actually consuming it. So it being your news time. This is the 10 minutes a day where I'm going to consume the news and then I am going to switch it off. Uh, We're passing through the 24 hour news cycle in my mind and we're returning to briefings and um, short, sharp podcasts and quick grabs of news. I think that's where we're headed. And what do you think that's going to do to the traditional giants of media in the coming years as that pendulum sort of swings? It's really up to them. Well, I mean, we know that they're, they're that we've, we're on their radar and, and we know that the temptation for them will be to say, we can do what they're doing ourselves. Um, ultimately, though, what it's going to take is for them to put young people in positions of authority to run the show, um, because if you don't, if you're not your audience, you can't really speak to an audience. That's we really believe that we are, we are the young people we are trying to speak to. Um, they'll try and, and and do the same stuff, um, but it's going to come down to the authenticity, um, and it's going to come down to what their eventual aim is and what their motive is. Our aim at the moment is just to grow. So everything we do, we think about how is this going to grow our audience, and the best way we can grow is through somebody recommending it to someone else. And the best way you can recommend it is through quality journalism. Mm. So our aim is not money. Um, you know, it's not about growing a business right now. It's about growing trust. Yeah, because you fundamentally understand that as soon as it is about money, it won't work and it will undermine what you're trying to do. And it's about growing, but it's yeah, obviously... and there's going to be other ways to do it. There's going to be other ways to make money. And it's about growth, but obviously it's about growing the right way and keeping the respect of everyone yep. who's got on board with it so far. What power do you think there is in these? Exactly. What power do you think there is in these grassroots platforms that sort of create themselves to actually influence long-lasting positive change in society, especially with the power of social media and how it's only going to gain in power? I think the more organisations that can use social media as a way to communicate positive messaging the more the algorithm and the brain behind how social media works will show us that good stuff. So we're learning a lot about how Facebook operates at the moment and it's through these kind of big leaked documents. And what we're learning is that Facebook has continuously rewarded traumatic content 
with more reach because it does well, because we're fascinated by it. We need to change that. We need to make sure that the grassroots organisations that are starting, whether that be in all different news verticals, so a good business paper or a good sports paper or whatever, that are transforming into digital publications, that they're making sure that their hero content is the good stuff. And that will show the social networks that people want to read good stuff. It's kind of a bit of a chicken and the egg, um, but we can't continue with having viral videos of really terrible things because uh, that the social media algorithm is just learning that that's what people want. Mm. How do you change that though? That's such a, you're talking about how human beings are wired and trying to override that at scale is a, that's a pretty yeah. big challenge, but I suppose you, you start bit by bit and perhaps because we're all on a similar wavelength worldwide with the pandemic, we're all getting to a certain level of sick of how things have been uh, and overloaded yeah. to the point where we can't really take on any more negativity and we're being switched off it. Perhaps if you put in front of people that there is an alternative and actually you don't have to engage with all of this and perhaps you'd feel better if you went a different route instead, maybe that just sort of slowly changes over time if you can stay in the game for long enough, but um, not yeah. an easy task. I would gladly be... Um the first media company in Australia to try this stuff and fail uh, and for the next company or the company after to, to succeed, then not try it at all. Um, we're not kidding ourselves that we know that this is a, we're trying to change human behavior and the way that humans relate to the news by normalizing explained journalism and by normalizing coming in at the ground level. Um, and we know that it might not work, but that's, it's a risk worth taking. Yeah, but I love that you're trying it and just because something might not happen or might not play out how you want it to is not an excuse to not give it a crack if you've got the nuts to go out and do that and most people don't. So I definitely respect that so much about Thanks, you man. and anyone who's achieved anything incredible or built something from scratch has had to face that thought and go and do it anyway um, and because you're brave enough to there's a good chance that it actually will pan out or it'll turn into something better than you could have imagined anyway so very brave uh, but also seems Thanks. like it's something that makes you feel good and more like yourself when you wake up in the morning and don't put a suit on exactly and and working with a group of people who share that goal um, who share the same anxieties around it not working but we can talk to each other about it um, and we can talk to each other about what we want to believe. You know, this is not a solo project. We've now got a proper team and we've found people who think the same way, which is really awesome. That's it for this episode. If you're getting some value out of the show, please help us out with a quick rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Everything we do is recorded in video, so follow Youngblood Men's Mental Health on Instagram and Facebook and Youngblood Mental Health on TikTok. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Youngblood Media, and please leave us a comment or send us a message if these stories resonate. We'd love to hear from you. And most importantly, please share the podcast with anyone in your life who might need it. We're all about reaching as many people as we can. This is Youngblood. Thanks for being part of the mission. Catch you next time.